Hello and welcome to yet another very special episode of our lovely Gestalten podcast. My name is Martin Groschwald and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Concept House. And today I'm very, very humbled and I'm very, very happy that we have a guest that some of our former uh, guests on this show and on this little podcast have mentioned as the most influential designer that they have worked with. So uh, this is going to be good fun and it's going to be quite interesting. Welcome uh, the one and only Chris Bangle. Welcome, Chris. <laughs> Thank you, Martin. That's, that's a very uh, soft <laughs> intro. Thanks, Martin. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it was really that kind of point is like, especially the last episode we did with Anders and when we had, uh, you know, Takumi Yamamoto on there as well. And when, you, you know, we have these little questions towards the end and I promise you you can't uh, you can't escape them and whenever I asked them I was like what is the most influential designer you've worked with or like you know someone that inspires you um, you have definitely come across uh, these people and uh, you know you've you've changed the way they were thinking so um, there's definitely something to be a little proud of at least um, well, from, fair from, as much as they've influenced me and changed the way I think so I mean I would I would rank those guys as some of the most inspiring people I've ever been with so I guess yeah. fair. well yeah I mean you know it, it it's a kind of give and take isn't it and when it comes to design it's never just one person there's, you know somebody has to decide but it is a group of people that inspires each other and then you get you know the team effort is what makes the difference I would I, I, I personally think I, I, you nailed it. I mean, doing this by yourself, it's kind of hard to imagine that some people do, you know, but I think artists are very good at that sort of thing, but I'm not so, so sure about designers. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk to you actually about this because there's this, um, I think it was a TED talk from somewhere in the beginning of the two thousands where you were talking about, you know, car design or cars as art and, I don't really want to review exactly that kind of talk and I don't really want to, uh, you know, want to go too much into detail about this. But what I'm interested in talking to you about is, is the idea, and I'm, I want to use a quote that you've had because I think this sums it up very, very nicely. You once said, cars are not a suit. Cars are an avatar. Cars are an expansion of yourself. They take your thoughts, your ideas, your emotions, and they multiply it. Now, with all these things that are happening at the moment in this kind of mobility service, yeah, like mobility idea. So we have autonomous driving, we have these vertical takeoff and landing machines, uh, the VTOLs, you know, we have, you know, car sharing and all these things. Do you think that cars can, can still represent the, the individual in, in the same manner as it was like, let's say, 15, 20, 25 years ago? Definitely not in the same manner. Okay, so I, I I think that's pretty much a foregone conclusion that we don't have the same relationship with the automobile that we used to have. That's that's pretty clear. Uh, interesting. I was just on a trip and listened to some uh, recordings from the fifties and sixties about mm. cars, how people saw them. You know, my little Deuce Coupe and my pink Cadillac and stuff like that. And th this love affair with the automobile was you know reaching a peak point back then so i don't think we can go back to that on the other hand the relationship that we have with our world things in it um there's a lot of room for identity and and people search mm -hmm. for that in their world so i don't see any reason why we can't reinterpret that with cars it's just going to be different what i find interesting is you know that this ever 
evolving kind of way on what is this kind of an individual feeling. Um, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, we had the car and, you know, you choose the colors and all these things. Now we're going into technology. I mean, everybody has almost the same phone. They look, look very, very similar, but you're having these covers around them. Do you think that cars will be something very similar that I don't want to say, you know, and I'm maybe a little bit provocative on this one, but the car designer itself doesn't really necessarily become obsolete, but he only builds the shell and then the customer is moving towards, you know, this, let's say a bespoke system or a very customizable system to make it their car rather than picking the car based on, you know, what they, what they like best. Well, I mean, I suppose you could say that the designers have been offering that for a long time, ever since there were customization options and things like that. Um, the, the major contribution that car designers do, however, is is the, the heavy-duty grunt work of taking a concept and, and getting it into a producible state. Hmm. You know, if, if left to, to their own, the engineers would do it maybe in a different manner. And if left to a automatized system that is going to hunt and pick from stuff that it knows from its, you know, intelligence base, it'll also come up with something different so the right now the human contribution is still i think at its at its best when it's doing that part of it the Mm -hmm. final stage of how customer details it colors it and everything like that that's almost a little bit less interesting to designers i think Uh, they would rather be involved in the more fundamentals Mm -hmm. but um We'll see how how challenged that becomes. I mean, certainly there's enough people out there trying to to find ways of eliminating even that um, that upstream part of the designer's work. Interesting, interesting. I mean, how long how long have you been? Uh, I don't want to say you you you've been out of the design industry, like of the car design industry, but since when when was exactly the kind of time frame when you when you moved away from the traditional car industry and and, and started doing different things? How how long ago is that now? I mean, that's, that's a very nice way to put it because we're yeah. putting a car together for China right now. So yeah. out of car business, I am not. <laughs> uh, however, not working for an OEM is since 10 years. So, I, I mean, I stopped basically about 10 years ago working for BMW. Mm. And since then, I've worked for the OEMs, but as a consultant, and my team has worked as design consultants for them as well. And finally, we had a car project, which I felt was correct for the studio to work on from start to finish. And that's yeah. the car reds that we, we showed uh, in Los Angeles uh, over a year ago. Oh, yeah. I think almost two years ago it'll be. Yeah. So that's the car that we're putting together now in China. Okay. So how do you make that call? That is interesting. So you, I, I'm, I can probably imagine you get a lot of requests from all different kinds of people. And it's like, hey, Chris, make me that kind of car. How, because you've mentioned like, you know, that was the right project for the studio. How do you decide that? What is, what is a, without going into too much detail and, you know, not sharing any kind of secrets, but how do you know this is the right project and this is, you know, a something for the future? Well, um, you know, it's, it's a good, very good question. And this, in, in my case, uh, since car design runs for me in three phases, this is something I learned in BMW. They never mm-hmm. called them that, of course, officially, but unofficially, you could say that the three phases that car design works in is a phase of understanding, believing, and seeing. 
in the understanding phase, you're just trying to understand what the, what the project is all about. What is it? What are you really being asked to do mm-hmm. in the believing phase is when you're creating alternatives to what you've understood. And when you decide on one, the reason it's called believing is there's no proof. There is no, mm-hmm. proof. you just have to believe it. Right. And the more you know about the project and your customers, etc., the better your belief will hold up. Then after that, there's a phase we call the seeing phase, which you can give other names to, but refers to the fact you actually have to look at what you've done and have you seen this defect here and here's a little problem here and resolve that issue there. And because these concepts are fundamentally human ones, understanding, believing, seeing, they also belong to human timescales. And it takes in the car business about a year for each one of those to sink into you. It takes you a year to understand something. It takes you a year to believe it. It takes you a year to see it. Uh, okay, you, you get the, the concept. It, yeah, can I give yeah. you an example? Hello? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, go on. Come on. Okay. So the example I like to give is is if you're asked to do, let's say, a container for liquids, in the understanding phase, you just rifle through all the different types of containers that could possibly be uh, a barrel, a bucket, uh, a can, a glass, you know, a bottle. Yeah. By the time you're done with that, you just said, okay, it is this. It's a glass, okay? Do you enter the believing phase because you have to know which glass it is? Is it the tall glass, the small glass, the shot glass, the wine glass? It's all kinds of glasses. And once you get through that phase, you say, okay, it's this kind of wine glass. That's what we want to do. Fine. Now, did you really look at it? There's a bubble here and a defect there, etc. So that gives you an idea of the kind of depth you have to go through in a car process. And when a client comes and says, okay, just give me some SUVs. Mm-hmm they're implying that they've already gone through this understanding phase and they already know what they want. Now, whether they've actually done this or not and they're doing the right thing is is a good question. But specifically, they're keeping you out of the loop on that. They're not mm-hmm. allowing you to be in the phase where you ask fundamental questions. Why are you doing what you're doing? What do you want to accomplish with it? Not just who will buy this, but why you are going to this effort to do this project. And most clients, almost all of them, never really want to get into that part of it. Mm. The exception with Reds was the, the Reds guys came and, and CHTC is the, is the client in, in mm. China. And they basically said, we want to do the right thing. So you help us understand this. That is, that is very interesting because it's, it's completely going against what, you know, this kind of new generation, I want to call it, of of car development goes through. I mean, you know, the, 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 the development cycles go, development cycles go much shorter. We're talking, you know, we're looking into China and cars are being developed in two, three years. Um, you know, do, do you think you, you, you once said that you always think there's a, a revolutionary cycle and then there's an evolutionary cycle. Do you think that this revolutionary cycle could be split in the middle, looking in, in particular in China and just say like, maybe you have now two generations of cars that come out within five years rather than just one. And, um, you know, and, 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 and therefore have a completely different kind of setup similar to what you just mentioned so that the, the, the understanding seem believing bit you know, becomes split into kind of like smaller parts nowadays because of this, these shorter cycles. Well, that's definitely a part of it. Yeah, they will. Uh, at the same time, we're redefining for ourselves what does revolution mean and evolution mean. Mm. And I think a, a good argument could be made for the fact that we are in a mannerist phase of car design. And when you look at what mannerism was for architecture and, and the arts, it was kind of... Uh, it could be summed up by saying 
that it was a period in which the people actually doing it, the artists and the architects, were kind of playing games with their own tropes. Things they were doing were meaningful to them, but really didn't have any great significance outside of that. They were changing because they could change, Mm. but not because there was an underlying structure they were trying to go to a different level. They were just playing with the things that had already been played with forever, and now they got bored and they did something different with it. Okay, that is a hyper oversimplification of what mannerism is. But in the car world, I think it's very appropriate. Uh, we've, we've nailed these tropes down so hard and so fast that nobody wants to challenge those. So our idea of revolution in that sense is highly, highly restrictive. Mm-hmm. And instead, we, we just try and scare each other now and then with, well, we'll put a hard crease here or we'll pop a taillight graphic out and make it mm-hmm. unexpected or we'll put some chrome where we didn't have it before and blah, blah, blah. I mean, kind of bores you silly, to be quite mm-hmm. honest. And unfortunately, as you say, these high-speed cycles of design um, development fuel a different approach to the design culture. You might recall that it wasn't so long ago that uh, a car company in, uh, in Southeast Asia decided that they would assign doing some car project, SUVs, I believe it was, to as many different design agencies as they could get to. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were approached and we said no for the reasons that you can understand. But everybody else who kind of is in this industry, of course, they play into these games because they're a customer. They, they, they need the work. And what did they do? They put it all online for people to choose. Mm-hmm. You know, it, was, it was the first wiki design uh, exercise for, for a large-scale object like an automobile. To me, this is a horrific development for our culture. It doesn't say anything about a management culture that stands behind the decisions. And that's, I mean, if you're dealing with something which is like graphics or something that changes rapidly like an app on a telephone, Mm. maybe I could understand this approach to it. But a significant piece of of industrial investment like an automobile, it seems flippant to do it that way. That's that's very, very interesting because I think what's the kind of feeling that we have on our day-to-day business nowadays is that the car industry itself let's let's call it the transportation industry because i I don't necessarily think it's only for cars this goes for commercial vehicles this goes for like you know uh planes everything nowadays is we're looking a lot towards the tech industry and with all these insights that we get from the tech industry these very short cycles and these very very quick developments what it seems that we don't understand, I mean, you know, just look at a, an Apple iPhone, it technically needs them nowadays three, four years to really re- redevelop what they have done. It's not just within two years anymore. It takes a little bit longer uh, because A, it gets, it's getting more and more complex. Yeah, the technology is getting more and more difficult, but it's also much more difficult to, let's say, shock the people than when Steve Jobs first showed the first iPhone. And do you think... You know, seeing that kind of development, do you think car design can still, and I'm talking on on a production level, not necessarily on a concept level, do you think the car design industry as it is nowadays in its current state can still shock with major changes in the aesthetics? Okay. Um, I mean, let's just look at the car that we did, Reds. Here's a car whose brief was was very clear. Um, Started with a very small footprint. Uh, they, they, one of the few givens that they had was this desire for a very, very small footprint car, um, and a car which 
made a difference for megacity uh, travelers as uh, not a primary mm-hmm. vehicle, a secondary vehicle, but maybe primary for other client groups who don't even really like cars. But they, they need uh, mobile usability in a different manner. What is that manner? What could it be? And what does that mean when it comes together as a car? We took that as our basis and developed the vehicle all around the idea of space and around the idea that when the car is not moving, which is, by the way, 90% of its life, then it has a huge mm-hmm. amount of added value to you. And it turns out that's really what people were waiting for, or at least many people. They were waiting for something that used their downtime in a different manner. Uh, I was talking to, to a guy the other day uh, who was telling me that with this type of a vehicle, he can reschedule his travels because he doesn't have to arrive at a meeting time. He can arrive way before when the traffic allows him and when he's calmer about it and spend the rest of his time in the car doing his office work and doing things that he needs to do anyway because the mm-hmm. car supports that. Okay, to do that. Actually, we had to reinvent a car design language, which is not a holistic one. It is a textual one, as it's called, from, from architecture, where you look at the layers of the, 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 the object itself as a set of texts that you read. And you can't read them all together. You can only read them one at a time, just like pages of a book. That whole approach... Mm-hmm. Combined with the fact that we decided to do it in a manner that split the car on different axes than had ever been done before. I know this sounds very technical, and for people in your audience who don't probably even think in terms of X, Y, and Z axes, they have no idea what I'm talking about. But for people who are in the business, they understand how to slice up the volumes of cars very well along the length of the car and the height of the car. But they've never really stepped back and said, what happens if we slice the car on the width of it and make it? Like it in slices mm-hmm. different on one on one width than on another. And that's what we did with reds. Okay, the end result is a car which is very disruptive, uh, very shocking, you know, not your everyday um, uh, punto, that's for sure. So, okay, we did that following a very clear brief for a company that's very serious about this. They're putting this into production. Why couldn't that be done at an OEM like Mercedes or BMW or Audi? Whoop, nothing stops them. They could do that. Mm. But I would also kind of go along with your your premise, which is, would the design culture allow that? Would the culture today mm-hmm. allow that? And here, I kind of have to throw a challenge out to my colleagues and say, you know, prove to me that you could. Or, you know, that you would do something much better or, or something different. But basically, prove to me that you can think outside the fear factors, which are the constraint on keeping you within a very narrow range of, of alternatives. And this is where we went with Reds. We went outside all the fear factors. And I'm not so sure whether you can do that inside an OEM these days. There is obviously a much, uh, you know, a very, very big problem. I mean, you know, when I when I spoke with people such as Anders and you know some other people that you used to work with very, very closely at BMW, they always appreciated the freedom that they had within the studio because there was very little outside influence. Yeah, so it was more like, look, doors closed. Feel free to like go crazy over here. Uh, and when we present it, you know, I'm standing in front of it, and I'll I'll, I'll make sure that that it's going to go, that it's going to work. Nowadays. With all the marketing influence, you know, and engineering and, and all these things, it's become more and more difficult to keep certain kind of, you know, secrets. I mean, you know, the last, last thing that I can remember that really was a secret internally as well as externally was the, the new Ford GT, where everybody said just like, look, this has just happened in this little chamber pretty much, you know, in, in the Ford headquarters in Dearborn. But, 
that that's that's another big problem i think we just you know the teams are so big i mean you know i think you know the average oem size at the moment is somewhere between 400 and 600 people uh in the car design department uh, i think geely now has 900 or a thousand people worldwide so to keep things secret is obviously a little bit more more tricky so maybe the only solution is to make it a little bit smaller again i don't know maybe that's maybe that's a, a direction to go into just to you know to keep things not to yourself but you know, keep it a little bit more closed in the in the community and not having hundreds and hundreds of people being part of it just from a design perspective and then, you know, plus the thousands extra that, that work on these projects to have a certain kind of surprise factor. Oh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of two things going on there. One is how they mm-hmm. surprise you and second, the size of the teams. Probably the size of the teams have inflated uh, dramatically given the, um, let's say, the lack of uh, innovative freedom that mm-hmm. the designers have. So if your, if your uh, range of mobility is, is really, really um, constrained, you wind up going, you know, microscopic in it. And at at higher granularity levels, you need more and more people to throw out the problem because you're dealing with tinier and tinier and tinier facets of an issue, which previously you solved with broad strokes. And hopefully these people are finding, you know, significance in what they're doing. And, and it's a good thing. They feel productive and, and the company appreciates it. But unfortunately, more often than not, it's an incredible amount mm-hmm. of Mickey Mouse work, uh, busy work that is um, just there to, to, keep second guessing what somebody who's not involved doesn't care isn't you know proactively involved in the design process but has huge decision making mm-hmm. power to keep these people fed you're feeding t- particularly in in some types of new OEMs they have no culture for yeah. decision making and because of that the enormous design teams are required just to feed the maw of an enormous consumption furnace of nothing. The decision is only made when the clock runs out. And that's a little bit unfortunate. 100% agree. 100% agree. And um, do you think we can still change that or is half the structures of big OEMs become so rigid that it's almost impossible to change that? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, certainly it's difficult in a time now where we're not in the gravy years uh, you know, one of the great uh, benefits that I had of my time in the companies I worked for is is pretty much happening during boom times uh, economically. So mm-hmm. there was money uh, to do things that nobody asked for and nobody expected. Nowadays, uh, you know, the choke flow is really tight. Uh, the automotive automobilists come under gun under gunfire from from left and right for for you know, for different reasons, you know, and and the industry itself does really stupid things like lie to their customers. You know, I mean that's really great. So mm-hmm. it's not such an easy time to 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 be courageous and be flexible and be inventive. I, I completely empathize with these guys who are trying to make these teams work. Simple it is not. Is it uh, an unstoppable momentum? Not so sure about that either. I think what it takes is it takes strong characters in the design world to to stand up and make statements um, that go contrary to maybe the grain of the corporate culture. And sometimes there are these people, and sometimes they're not. But is it is it not something? I mean, you know, I'm I'm asking myself the question 
a lot recently, and I'm, I've been talking to a lot of people about this, and I, I certainly believe in this in this situation that we're in at the moment. You know, the idea about challenging design and new design is so overrun oftentimes by marketing that smaller companies and, you know, let it be richer companies, but companies that come from a different kind of perspective are the ones that are actually capable of uh, of challenging the car industry to to a degree where some companies will go down eventually because they can't keep up with the speed or they can't keep up with the change but some other companies will will be able to do that i mean you know we've seen that from a tech industry from the from the mobile phone industry you know nokia was on its highest level then apple came about and and had this touchscreen in there and everything changed from then onwards can can this change you know can this kind of next step towards the within the car industry uh, towards a mobility service or a mobility industry is is it for you that it has to come or that it is predestined to come from the car industry or would you say we don't even we don't even know where this is coming from but it's definitely not coming from the car industry because we have certain structures in place well the idea of becoming the mobility industry is okay they join the ranks of the elevator makers okay right <laughs> up there perfect you know uh, they join the ranks of the moving sidewalk people and the guys who, who lay railroad tracks. I, I guess, you know, if that's what you want to be, fine. If you think that's where the money is, fantastic. Car design per se has another role. Uh, I tend to look more at that as my interest. What does car design do about this? Mm-hmm. Car design's job is to, to put character and, and personality into an object to the point where you say that thing is me. Mm-hmm. So if if we decide that that's no longer relevant, then automobile design will will supersede car design. Car design will turn into something else. Um, we'll do other things, but uh, certainly the automobile doesn't necessarily have to be the only um, medium in which we we ply our trade. You know, for years I've argued that we should be looking at robotics and we should be looking at other things. And in my own studio, we do different things with the same philosophy of car design, the same approach. It just doesn't have four wheels. Mm. So I think car design can have a great and glorious future, whether it's it has to be wedded to the automobile and this great mobility um, phase we're entering into. Uh, I would rather question that. Uh, however, if you don't mind me tacking on something onto this, uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm a little worried that we're we we over focus on some issues of design with car design, which, in the greater scope of things, I think will there'll be other things which will prove much more important, both for the future of the automobile, for the future of car design, but also for the future of like humanity. Car mm-hmm. design has to see itself within the culture of design and creativity and the expression through an industrial medium, say stuff that people make and stuff that people buy and stuff that people use as a representative of where society as a whole is, where our world as a whole is. And if we if we ignore that, we we become sidelined. We become easily marginalized as other things take over. You know, for instance, um, I just give you an example, which is very clear in front of me these days. It used to be that um, shoe designers, like tennis shoe designers, if mm-hmm. you went into their studios ten years ago, you would see nothing but sports cars on their walls of their of their inspiration boards. Tons and tons of cars, because a shoe to them is kind of like a car written small. You know, um, yep. they say that about furniture and architecture. Furniture is architecture writ small. It's been said. It's the same mm-hmm. with shoe design. It's cars writ small. Well, 
Now you go into those studios, you don't see cars on the walls. You see architecture on the walls because with generative design and scripted design and things like this, which architects have embraced wholly, car designers don't really know what to do with that except for a few Mm -hmm. decorative elements, a grill or a wheel cover or a little patch on the side of a car. We don't know how to embrace a concept like generative design so fully that it becomes the expression of the vehicle. And as a result, what happens? The shoe guys, they don't follow us anymore. They follow the architects. Well, if we're not leading and we can't follow the architects either, what are we? You know, if, if nobody cares what we do, what are we in the scheme of things? Are we, are we still an anomaly trying to relive a, an unusual past, which is clearly being written off the, the, the face of the planet as we speak? Or are we a part of an ongoing developing culture of the future? And I think the, the debate on this, the dialogue on this hasn't begun and probably car designers don't want to begin it. Mm-hmm. Don't forget that most car design schools are car guys teaching wannabe car guys. Okay. Mm-hmm. The wannabe car guys go into the industry to do what? Exactly what the guy that taught them did, except a little bit different so they can claim it was theirs. Mm-hmm. You don't see this, this approach of we want to be a part of a cultural phenomenon that represents our world and we're just going to use this medium of cars to do it. I, I don't see it. So the the whole discussion about where is car design in the world and what is the industry doing and what is it moving, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to be, you know, an argument about moving chairs on the deck of the Titanic. Unless we decide to get off of that ship and Mm -hmm. relook at the entire scope of what our world is, what is design, what is our job to do in that? What are we here to do? And say, okay, how do we reapply what we know how to do to the industry that wants us to work with it in a way that our world is better for everybody? Mm -hmm. I fully agree. I mean, I think... Sorry, I had to download that, but, you know, <laughs> no, but it comes out. But that's the right thing to say. I mean, you know, look, and, and, and I want to give you a little bit of um, a little bit of an anecdote, which is quite interesting, because you mentioned about, um, you know, your, your red earlier that, you know, cars are, you know, standing still for 90, uh, 90% of the time. And I'm not quite sure if you've read this, because I know your German is quite good, but the, uh, the FAZ which uh, for our listeners is the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. Um, it's one of Germany's biggest newspapers. They had this really interesting article about um, car sharing uh, very, very recently. Uh, we'll link it in the show notes for this one as well. And pretty much what it says, there was this, this car sharing company and they realized people were you know, paying money to rent these cars for a certain amount of time, but they were simply not moving them. They found they they you know they were thinking about I was like oh you know what's going on is that kind of kind of mistake in the system, they found out everything was fine with the system. The people rented the cars as places just to relax, to chill, to calm down, you know, to have a a a conversation with someone. And if we if we see that about car sharing, for example, I still have not understood why you know the car design industry has not included way more product designers, um, you know, industrial designers, furniture designers uh, into these kind of concepts to bring these things together. And of course it has something to do with ego. Yeah. It is a car. It's like, Oh, you know, it's a big product. It's pretty cool to do that. But I do very much agree with what you're saying in the sense of, you know, if, if, if the industry does do that, then you have a little bit of a problem. And I think the product industry has always been much more open to bring people together, uh, you know, furniture and, you know, the, 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 the fashion industry as well. Of course, there's always going to be people that are specialized and they have the absolute knowledge of how to bring a specific product onto the road, onto shelves and all these kind of things. But the car industry is, 
interestingly extremely close and even in a university level you can go to universities you know like the the, the the transportation students don't even talk to the industrial students and that's where it starts so maybe it's more like a you know like like a grassroots problem out of you know that oh no you're 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 absolutely dead on with that that's very nice i, yeah. I look forward to looking at that if i said article that supports what we're doing um you know, like with our car, we challenged, you know, what I like to call the tyranny of aerodynamics. Okay, there's this mm-hmm. idea that aerodynamics is everything. And that's why you will never see a vehicle done by anybody else who's anything other than a trapezoidal object, which is trying to be, you know, sloped windows and everything like that. Criminy, you know, you got a car parked 90% of the time. Do you know what the heat load is on that thing? You got the sun boiling down through these sloped windows because, okay, at 180 kilometers an hour, that's the best way to do it. I guarantee, I completely agree with you. But for 90% of its life, it's becoming a cooker. And you know, if you have an electric car, what that's doing to the to the energy system, you're just mm-hmm. draining the battery like hell just to run the, the air conditioners. So with our car, we we made negative glass on it specifically mm-hmm. to put the car in a shadow. So the car we had it in Cannes the other day. It was. It was incredibly hot out and the car was okay you didn't need to run air conditioning it was fine you could just sit in it because it was in a shadow so as long as things like this and i i repeat this tyranny of the aerodynamics remains people aren't going to get their heads around something else now here's an interesting thought why aerodynamics okay there's you know good reasons for things like stability at speed. That's a very good reason. And buffeting and wind noise. These are all, I think, very valid arguments. But the critical argument is about mm-hmm. consumption. Okay? It reduces consumption. It increases range, mileage, and stuff like that. And reducing consumption is good. Okay? Well, it's good as long as you draw the chain all the way back to mm-hmm. reducing CO2. Correct? Suppose you're powering the car with renewable energy sources. Yeah. Doesn't okay? care. Sunlight. Doesn't matter what does it matter to you how much sunlight you're consuming for this car? It's just a money factor at that time. Yeah. Okay. So if we, I mean, if we really took this thing seriously, then there wouldn't be any large consuming cars out there at all. Instead, we take it so, so seriously. <laughs> but the idea that the future has to be completely driven by aerodynamic shapes and forms, boom, let's look at it differently. In the end, we get to the question, of course, of asking, you know, uh, if we if we build these products, it's very, you know, philosophical and like, you know, we know exactly that there's there, there should always be different, you know, different points of view out there. Um, how do you think we can we can get the customers to understand these these new shapes? Because that was always a problem about, you know, uh, electric cars and people were never taking it as far as they could have. Because they were scared that the customer would just, you know, would, would just be scared away with that. How, how do you think that design in such a well, – what kind of role can design play to get these customers to feel comfortable with the product? Because in the end, everybody in the beginning was like, oh, you know, coming back to the iPhone, was like, oh, you know, there's no – what? There's no keyboard or stuff like that. But people got used to it extremely quickly. What can the car industry do to make the customer get used to that kind of – these kind of new ideas very quickly? Well, I always thought that was an interesting phenomenon inside the car car designer world themselves. I mean, car designers are the greatest at, at, at telling you that what somebody else did is complete crap, right? <laughs> and so here on the one side, they lament the fact that we never have room for innovation. Somebody does something innovative, they say, that's crap because it doesn't look like everything else, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So maybe the first step is we ourselves have to get our heads around the idea that different isn't necessarily bad. Oh, that's a starting point. Yeah. Uh, secondly, we 
I think we have to introduce various ways for our customers to understand that they can live with something different because it matches what they need to do. Uh, for our particular customers, for Reds, I certainly hope. I mean, we haven't sold the car yet, so I'm hoping it works. It seems to, by all the feedback we got, that the type of clients that we're going for, they kind of wouldn't have bought a car otherwise. Mm -hmm. They don't. They don't, they're not really drawn to have to drive a different car because a different kind of car because that's what they've grown up with and they need to drive that. They would really like to have a solution for their life. And okay, if it looks different, it looks different. Maybe they're the cutting edge and later cutting edge becomes mainstream, like the bell curve usually says. Mm. Uh, let's hope so. If you follow the, the, the user scenarios for the smart, the famous uh, Mercedes mm -hmm. Smart, for years that car languished in its sales curve because the idea that smaller could be more expensive was like super contrary to people. Mm -hmm. But then it caught on, you know, became pretty much a hit. So uh, very well understood. Things take time. Culture has to change. It depends a lot on what we can do to uh, – to, to support that. And how do we support that? Well, the first thing we do is we maybe support innovation instead of criticizing. <laughs> that's very, uh, that's very true. And I think you can see that. Um, I'm not quite sure how you're involved in all these kind of things, but, um, I always find it very interesting, especially when I speak to interior designers that they are, let's say not majorly interested in what's happening on the screen. And I certainly believe that especially, I'm not quite how it is with you and your team, but I think it's a little bit different. But if I look into the OEM studios nowadays, in particular, the interior designers, they are interested in innovation that touches them directly, which is, you know, materials and, and all these kind of things. But they're always a little bit shying away from this kind of digital content that happens on the screen. And is for you this kind of, you know, this digital work on screens, you know, with phones as important as the physical stuff nowadays? Or is do you still make the cut and just like, look, if we do a product, let's not talk about the, the digital stuff. Let's only talk about what we can physically handle or like, you no, know, no, have in our hands. Without a doubt. And what really surprised me is how how you handle the digital world really puts your car into a time frame. It, it'll age a car faster than anything. Um, I, I was quite mm. surprised to, to discover how real that phenomenon is. But um, if you don't upgrade graphics, interactions, uh, sense of interface, I'm not talking about uh, tech solutions, but just visually how mm -hmm. one is, is drawn into that world. If that doesn't stay at the edge of people's understanding of this is what our modern world is about, the, the car age is worse than anything. So you have to give those guys a lot of credit for the work they do on that. The interior designers, particularly the, the, the GUI guys and well, basically mm -hmm. anybody who's in HMI. Um, they, they have, they got their work cut out for them. This stuff is anything other than intuitive and anything other than straightforward. So, I, I mean, I, I have great respect for these guys. Do you think we will see, you know, in the very near future guys that mix both the physical and the digital stuff? Because at the moment in most companies, you have the silos. Yeah. It's split. Like you have one is the other HMI. Okay. Fair enough. Is a certain kind of mix in the middle, but do you think there's going to be this, you know, bringing those two departments together really as one to, to enhance the experience? Do you see that at the moment happening? Um, yeah. I mean, once it, we go back to the size of the teams and everything like that, I mean, we're doing a whole car with a very, very small team. Um, it can be done. Uh, you just have to make decisions very clearly and and always go forward. Don't go backwards. So uh, if you have an enormously huge team, it's going to be difficult for people to get multiple experiences or even express them because, you, you know, you're siloed by the sheer numbers. 
I guess it depends a little bit how these things will will turn out in the future. I'm hoping that that the whole wave of let's say self-driving cars or uh, vehicles which are being produced for non non-individual consumption starts to push a trend towards the old crotzeria mm-hmm. days where you invested more time into designing this thing for you because it was a it was an experiential phenomenon not just an object and uh, you know we we've seen this with a number of things um the I mean, one of the great lessons learned that we had in trying to do a a motorcycle, which was trying to tap into the mentality of the chopper Mm -hmm. world, the Harley-Davidson world is, was in realizing that a Harley-Davidson is all about arriving and Mm -hmm. departing, whereas the motorcycles that we're doing are all about all in Mm -hmm. between, you know, taking the curves, enjoying the road, absorbing the bumps, being super safe at high speeds. Those vehicles from from Harley, they're they're a lot about the the kind of street theater that happens when you when you uh, hop on a thing and roar off, and when you pull up and pull that kickstand mm-hmm. kickstand down while you're still sitting there in a reclining position. That is fantastic. And if you don't understand that, you, you're going to approach the whole thing mm-hmm. wrong. Well, imagine if that's what cars turned into. Like right now, we have this incredible obsession with what happens in between A and B. We with Reds did a car that says, "Okay, you're at A." or you're at B, or you're stuck in between A and B, now what do you do? And what happens if cars say, you know what? It's all about arriving at A and departing at B. What would they become? Mm. Well, that's a similar concept that Volvo tried to explore with the 360 concept. Yeah, That went exactly into that kind of direction. What do you think, or let's put it that way, which company do you think is – is has the most potential to actually find a solution for that as a you know someone who actually produces the car so not as an agency or something like that but like you know somebody who who can really produce and who has the cash to to let's say produce that who's the most who has the most potential okay so uh, solution is the wrong thing we're looking for um i don't think we're looking for a solution um Instead, we're looking for a, a change of, of mindset. And I'm not really 100% sure where that's going to come mm-hmm. from the automotive industry itself. It might come from entertainment. Oh, wow. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, if, if movies is, and games are what drives our customers, they're going to be more influenced by what they see in that than they are by anything else. That sounds very interesting, but uh, I, I think you know maybe we should do in a second a second podcast on on this topic because we can we can talk easily another forty five minutes on that one. Um, but Chris, uh, thank you very much. But before I let you go, we always ask three questions to our guests, and um, don't worry, okay. they're quite simple, quite easy. Um, and uh, I'm just going to go ahead. Question number one: Who was the most influential designer you have worked with? For you personally, hmm. wow, this is really tough. The most influential designer who I've worked with, oh, gee whiz, really, really tough. I mean, my whole team at BMW was highly, highly influential on me. Um, I mean, I learned car design at Fiat, so the guys at Fiat had an enormous impact on me. Uh, when I was at at Opel. I worked for for people who were, you know, GM car business way back into the cut your teeth days, mm. and and then people outside of it who I've had, you know, interactions with as as a friend and and 
you know, as a professional acquaintance, people like Sid Mead, who, who just you know, in, in, influenced generations of designers. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult for me to bring this down to some names. And, you know, if you name one, you, you leave out other people, of course. Um, uh, generally, the people that I've worked with have always highly influenced me. Um, and they, they probably never knew how much I was drawing off of them to try and figure out where we're going to go from here and whatnot. People like Anders and Chris Chapman and, uh, Merrick Georgievich and, and people like that who were this design works crew that came into BMW and made huge change were of course really, really influential. But at the same time, they came with other generations as well, which, you know, followed on their heels, changed your opinion on things. And they themselves got 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 put into a, a spool of creativity, which I think helped them go far beyond what they could have done otherwise. Um, I, I think I'm going to take a, a rain check on that one because there's too many people and I, I would feel very sad if I said the wrong person's name first. I'll take that. So I'll take that. I, I'm going to, I'm going to leave that one out. That's fine. That's I'll take that. And I think that's, uh, uh, that's actually a very nice answer. I think that really, uh, you know, shows the appreciation that you have for, for the people that you've worked with as well. And, uh, I'll, I'll take that all day long. All right. So question number two, which project you did not work on, would you have loved to work on? Which project I'd love to work on? What I'd love to work on? P fifty one Mustang. My father actually worked on the prototype of that. I was always jealous of the fact that he worked in the in the construction house of that of that airplane during the war. But we'll let that go. That's not mm-hmm. a car. Um, hmm. Do, 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 do. Of course, you know, any of the great Carrozzeria cars, you wish you were there when they were doing them. You would have loved to have seen what was running through their minds mm-hmm. when they decided to do this, that, and the other thing. Uh, I remember talking to uh, to um, uh, Paolo Martin about uh, the Modulo and what they were thinking at Pininfarina at the time when they were trying when they were trying to just demonstrate that they could go mm-hmm. out of the box further than any of these these uh, Johnny Come Latelys. Uh, it was kind of interesting hearing that from him about how that great car was done. Um, I don't know. You know, that's another really good question. There's probably no car I wouldn't want to have been the fly on the wall of when they were doing it, but to have actually had my say in it and said, <laughs> okay, this one is because yeah. I really wanted it to come out this way. Oh, well, yeah. You're terrible me, at these questions. They're really awful. Ah, I do apologize. But let me ask you another one. So you've, you've worked on two or three cars in your career. In hindsight, which one was the, 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 the one project that you had the most fun at? You know, it doesn't need to be the best project, but just like the one that you had the most fun at developing with the team. Oh, definitely Reds. The, this car that we're doing now is the most fun uh, because it's it's a huge, huge challenge. But at the same time, uh, it's all happening in this wonderful, rarefied atmosphere. We're above the cloud layer on this car. You, you, know, you see these mountaineers and they climb up in the mountains and then they look down and there's like this deck of clouds. Yeah. Well, yeah. when you when you're working on this car, you have this feeling everybody else is underneath the cloud layer, and we're up here. We have an incredible view. We can see all these things that these poor guys don't see. Just get up a little bit higher, and mm. you would see it. So I, I think this car, from that point of view, is got to be one of the ones I enjoy the most. 
when I was a young kid, you know, when we were doing a car like like the Opel Junior I worked on the interior of or, or the, the Coupe Fiat that I did the exterior on. These are enormous learning projects. So the great fun in those is how much you have to learn. Uh, yeah. But REDS is a project about giving back. Gina, mm-hmm. Gina was one of those projects right in the middle. It was halfway learning and halfway giving back. Uh, that that project in and of itself is is going to remain very memorable to me, and I'm very happy that it's memorable for many people as well. Mm-hmm. It surely is. It surely is, and it's still at BMW, but it's, you know here in Munich, and uh, the, this, uh, let's put it that way. Still, a lot of people you know look at it and just like you know, wow, this is you know this is this is something, and uh, it's definitely uh, you know a sign that that it stands the test of time. And but last but not least, question number three. I think this one is a little bit easier, at least I hope. And I do apologize if it's not. But if you would have any money in the world to spend, which car would you buy? Wasn't this the fourth question? Uh, Sorry. Oh yeah. I think you could track you. I think you get four out of this one here. Okay. I mean, uh, I drive an X6, first generation X6, which I'm very proud of. I like the car very much. I, uh, my contribution in it was small, but. What, but a nice one and, and one that drives good memories of the team that did it and we had a lot of fun making it and it was very interesting so I, I like this car a lot and I really don't want to get rid of it um, unfortunately you know these things age and uh, the electronics age and the emissions level is no longer at the highest level to be allow you to drive into all the cities and stuff so something has to change so if there's a car to, to buy I'd probably be thinking of a car to replace this one instead of like oh wow just have to buy this Lamborghini or this Ferrari just to have it in the garage to, to look at I really like old cars um, uh, like really old cars you know Stanley Steamer type stuff mm-hmm. I admire so much Jay Leno and his ability to put together an eclectic car collection which is important to him and because it's important to him, it becomes important to everybody. And I, I think that's probably the most a collector can do is is use their passion to to get other people excited about things that they wouldn't have been excited about otherwise. Uh, so I, I really, really admire that in him, and I hope he, he keeps going and doing that for many, many years. Yeah. Um, so something like that of these old cars, which basically came around the time where they were just deciding to go to a steering wheel. Mm-hmm. Ones that are very interesting. Cool. That's Chris. Thank you very much. My pleasure for your time. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure, and uh, it's it's been a very very lovely conversation. I really do appreciate that. And uh, yeah, so everybody, we do appreciate you listening in once again to another episode. Once again, thank you very much to the absolutely lovely Chris Bangle. And if you have any comments, you know, or want to send us a message, feel free to do so, you know, the social media content and everything else. And, uh, yeah, we will, you will hear us or like me and, uh, in the future, then Eric again for the next episode, uh, very likely from the Frankfurt motor show. So see you soon. All the best.